I'm Rob. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. This will be our final episode, wrapping up the Under the Banner of Heaven series, in which we'll discuss episodes six and seven of the series. I think what Nate was about to say is we've had a recording hiatus mm-hmm. due to... Vacations and COVID. Illness and vacation, and both of us having traveled. So it's mm-hmm. been a little while since we've watched any of the series and recorded. And in the meantime, I've been re-listening to the John Crack Hour book, so some of the actual events are refreshed in my mind, Indeed. which will end up coming up as we discuss this further. But yeah, we just concluded watching episode six. Nader, what are your initial thoughts? I liked the, especially the early part of episode six, then less so some of the, the latter developments. So we'll do what we've kind of done before, which is go roughly chronologically through some of the events of this episode. We, so we start out at the Widow Lafferty's house. They have some more conversations about, you know, the the case. They talk about the the school of the prophets meeting in the basement. Well, they and I should clarify death. a couple things before we move on. I've said okay. in previous episodes that the Lafferty father, like the patriarch, was still alive when the murders occurred. Yeah. I was mistaken. He had passed. They had returned from their mission, and there is a reference in this. They've got Mr. Wright, played by Darren Goldstein, over at the Lafferty family home. And he's talking about how he thinks it's possible that they murdered the the patriarch, Mr. Watson Lafferty. And what had happened was he had diabetes that the family decided not to treat by conventional means, that they were going to go like a holistic means for treating it. And even after it was obvious that it was not working, they continued to not treat his diabetes, which led to his death, Mm -hmm. which is what they're talking about. So Miss Lafferty, I forget her first name, was a widow at the time. They did discuss plans for the murder and stay at her house the night before committing the murders. Was the school of the prophets held in their basement, or was it held principally somewhere else? I don't recall for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't recall whether the school of the prophets was actually held in their basement or whether it was held in a different location. There's other things that they're getting out of order here. Like this trip to Oregon did not happen prior to Ron's affiliation with the school of the prophets. As I've mentioned several other times in other recordings, the School of the Prophets came much earlier and had a significant influence on some of their other stances, the polygamy stuff, the tax stuff. And in fact, Ron Lafferty was the bishop of the School of the Prophets. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that introduced wine to the School of the Prophets and their sacrament that they would administer. And then it was after... So once in the School of the Prophets, one of the other things we're going to eventually get to is the removal order. In the School of the Prophets, they would actually bring forward their revelations to be presented to the school for approval. However, they never approved his removal revelation. Okay. They do here. Yes. And then this this trip to Oregon occurred amidst the School of the Prophets. And I think it was after his wife had left him. Ron's wife had left him, uh, had divorced him, and had moved back to Florida but yeah, they, they've changed a lot of the order of stuff. This dream mine, this city of refuge, all of this also happened before, you know, some of this started to come. Well, you know, the, 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 the show jumps around in time. Okay. So they, they have the, the investigation narrative and then they flash back. Well, but in the, in the series, they're showing him going to Oregon and then coming back okay. to the school of the prophets and meeting the prophet on IS. I don't, I don't really care about that. I think that's a minor point. Uh, the prophet Onias was significant on their fundamentalizing, and that's why it's relevant. Okay. This pamphlet that they're distributing when Ron gets back, 
he was part of helping write that pamphlet. Ron Lewis. Yes, and all of the Lafferty brothers were instrumental in getting yeah. it distributed, and they sent it to all LDS congregations in Utah. Wow. Throughout the Intermountain West, actually. It's a yeah. great way to draw negative attention to yourself. Yeah. So they have that little trip where Ron is searching, and he goes to uh, Oregon and meets uh, John Bryant, prophet president of the Church of the Covenant of Christ. Is this real? Yes. Okay. And they're kind of hippie-ish Mormons. And in this, they indicate this is where they got wine from because they talk about how, well, the word of wisdom came in this context of this temperance movement and uh, the revelation itself says it's by way of extortion. or It's not by way of commandment. So they drink wine and Ron apparently likes this and then engages in a really kind of strange kiss with the... Uh, Prophet John Bryant comes back, has interactions with the School of the Prophets, is not and so prophet, keen prophet Onias. with the Prophet Onias uh, at first, but uh, goes on to... Uh, the Prophet Onias himself is, is content to be kind of a second-in-command figure. The Lafferty's did come to dominate the School of the Prophets mm-hmm. to a certain extent, but yeah. And then they did make a reference earlier that John Bryant was a... His group is a break-off of the Apostolic United Brethren, or AUB, which is kind of the the left-wing, to the extent that there's a left-wing group in fundamentalist Mormonism. They don't do child marriage. They have long cooperated with state authorities on abuse claims. But their prophet, uh, Rulon Allard, who was also a chiropractor, was killed by rivals in, the, in 1977. And his funeral, which I want to say they had at Bingham High School, was one of the biggest funerals in the history of Utah up to that time. Hmm. There's more stuff with Pyrie and his mother and his kids. More Prophet Onias stuff. They go to the Dream Mind. There's a portion of, this might be my favorite scene, is when the father-in-law of Alan... So I, I got the names wrong earlier. Okay. I referred to Mr. Wright as the one that accused the Lafferty's of murdering their father. That was Mr. Br- Brady. They, guy, they call Brady in this series. Mr. Wright, played by Darren Goldstein, is Brenda's father. Yeah. So he comes to a visit. There's been some dispute about taking this, this sick baby to the hospital. Alan didn't want to. Brenda insisted and brought her sister and father down from Idaho to assist. And the two sisters went to the hospital with the baby. The father has a conversation with Alan. They listen to Love Brings Us Up Where We Belong on the radio, and he kind of speaks the lyrics, and I, I was drinking something at the time, and I almost did a spit, a spit take. I mean, it was, it was funny. Yeah. And then they eat a cherry cordial, which ironically, I had literally just eaten a cherry cordial. It was, it's a sign, man. It's like, that was weird. I, I found that, I don't know, I liked that scene. It was so bizarre. But it was neat the way he was trying to common sense his son-in-law. Well, and there was a truthfulness to that. So yeah. Brenda had reached out to her family, mm-hmm. and they were trying to help straighten Alan. Alan out. There was actually at one point talk of Alan and Brenda moving up to Idaho to be closer to her family, to help separate him from his family. Yeah. And Brenda, this is another thing that they're changing in the series for a functional purpose, which isn't fully clear yet, but the implication is that they're trying to shift the blame for certain decisions to the church and away from Brenda. Brenda came to the conclusion that she needed, they needed to stay in Utah so that she could help Ellen save the Lafferty family. Mm -hmm. So they had actually had plans to move up to Idaho Falls, be close to her family. 
And then Brenda's the one who decided they needed to stay so that she could help the Lafferty. This is a little bit of a retread because they'd already talked about that in a previous episode. Well, but in the series, they she meets with people from the Quorum of the Seventy uh who give her a blessing and tell her that she needs to stay and and be the one to straighten out the Lafferty's. It's kind of, I mean, they've already kind of covered this territory. And I guess maybe they were wanting to... What's the function of this? Put this idea, kind of reemphasize this because... Because it's been several episodes since they'd mentioned it, that that she felt this need. You had talked about how they were trying to. Desalent Spike seemed to be trying to shift the blame in this to the church for his decision. Now, I, I this would be if I were to make a defense of, of this, I would say, well, this is a means of communicating to a largely non-LDS audience the what in reality is a more abstract pressure. That she would have felt to stay and make things work by putting it in the in the mouths of church authorities. I agree. It's kind of kind of. I'm, I'm not sure if I like that. How much I like that, or if, how it doesn't it, function for me. Like we're already in this series talking so heavily about the effects of like personal revelation on this Lafferty family. And yet we're supposed to believe that Brenda can't get the same level of personal revelation without church intervention. You know, that's, it's not... Well, her, her, they're pre- presenting her as taking a much more orthodox position and, and going out of her way and doing things like bringing in the bishop early on and bringing in now the 70 to try to use that institutional authority to nudge. Like, they also have the sequence where she's trying to nudge the siblings back into activity by doing things to make them concerned that their wives uh, might uh, leave them. So she gets some missionaries to come around. To Which is to also not accurate. But So there's parts of this are accurate and parts of it aren't. Brenda was acting, trying to get the sisters to help their husbands, you know, and things like that. The bishop did help Ron's wife. Brenda. No, not Brenda. No. Diane. Yeah. So the bishop and Brenda did help Ron's wife, Diane, so she, her con- main concern in leaving Ron was that she had no marketable skills. Yeah. Ron and, and Brenda met when Ron was a missionary in Florida and then married right after his mission. Brenda had never had a job. She'd never had any functional skills. So her concern in leaving Ron was that she, she didn't have any marketable skills. Yeah. So the church helped her and supported her, both the bishop and the stake president, in filing for divorce from Ron. Ron and Dan at this point have both already been excommunicated from the church because of their affiliation with the School of Prophets and things that they were doing in terms of polygamy. Both had already been excommunicated from the church, and then they help her pay for the divorce, file for divorce, all of that type of stuff, which is why the bishop and stake president were included in the re- in the oh, removal okay. revelation, and Brenda as well. So it was Brenda, the bishop, and the stake president that helped Diane leave Ron, and Diane at this point is already back in Florida with her family. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but this is the context of how Brenda, the bishop, and the stake president end up in, in the removal order, which there's reference to in this series, but they name Diane in, uh, as someone that needs to be removed, not Brenda, not the bishop, not the stake president. Well, we're seeing... See, this is the multiple timelines causing confusion, because... We see a moment where where they're at the school of the prophets, and he gives uh, Ron gives this revelation about Diana. But in the timeline of the investigation, uh, they become aware of the the hit less the removal order, and then they go around and they visit the bishop, condones the bishop, the state president, try to hope to warn him. Well, my understanding of the timeline of this episode is that this is all after they've already 
I mean, others have gone and, and warned people, particularly Matilda Lafferty, which some of the wives had warned some of the people involved in trying to help Diane that they were possibly in danger through subtle means. But in terms of this series, and when that's being presented, this has all happened after the Oregon trip. They're also learning about the removal order revelation through the letters okay. that, that Brenda has written to her sister. Yeah, but they already, they've, they're already aware of it. They're aware the of the removal episodes. order, but now they're getting more, more clarification. De- they're getting clarification about it, but yeah. that, that they were aware of it. When <laughs> There's a silly line where she, Brenda talks about saying the missionaries, a couple of hunks. Yeah, to to remind them about the church, and then they have that con- the conversation with the missionaries are funny. The extent of, of the humoring of of the missionaries because you know these are these are young guys. They're being asked to do to to save the souls of you know to, to you know, save these women basically. Yeah, which is beyond their capability. They give it a good a good faith try, but that they don't have any success. I love the conversation. I think this is the second time where they're talked about capitalism as part of Heavenly Father's plan. And then one of my favorite lines is when they confront the one Scottish sister-in-law and she comes to Brenda's home to deliver a warning because she had sent the missionaries with some store-bought goods for her sister's in law because their husbands were making them churn their own butter and kind of do things this old-fashioned way because they had this idea that the store-bought stuff was bad. But the line... Which was truthful. The line I want to get to is when she comes to the house and, and accuses Brenda of trying to buy our sisters back into a corrupt church through store-bought butter. Mm-hmm. It's one of the great, great lines yeah. of this thing. It's interesting which things he's choosing to keep, or the, the showrunners in general are choosing to keep, and which ones that they are inten- intentionally twisting, misleading, or completely changing. They kind of, they, they kind of break in threes as they're investigating... Taba goes up to the dream mine, ends up meeting Onias. That's kind of where they end that storyline in this episode. They send one of the junior cops, and eventually Pyrie joins him to the 7-Eleven, because there was a 7-Eleven robbery, some shoplifting that appears to have been done by one of the Lafferty brothers. I love that it's a 7-Eleven, because Utah is crammed to the gills with these things, and was even more so in the 1980s. And then Pyrie goes back home, and he's had that conversation with well, but he's scared because this 7-Eleven is just Close, blocks from yeah. his house and the direction that the Laffy brother who committed the shoplifting fled from yeah, to, fled to is yeah. into, the sub, into the neighborhood where he lives. And then Detective Pyrie pulls out the book. Yeah, pulls out the book. So, so he had had that discussion with um, Alan. Alan, and Alan had talked about doing some church history research and had used a book that he had put in the cover under the cover of a woodworking, woodworking textbook which ended up in the evidence file, and so Pyrie takes that out of the evidence pile, takes it home, has it in his office, for some reason decides not to read from it in his office, where it would seem normal that he's reading the book, but takes it into the garage and is reading from a book, and that book is uh, Mormonism, Shadow of Reality, 1963 by Gerald and Sandra Tanner, uh, one of the, uh, I guess you could say, classics in the anti-Mormon uh, genre, uh, the 20th, one of the, for possibly the most iconic 19th century or 20th century anti-Mormon book other than maybe some of the Ed Decker stuff. 
but he's out reading that and his wife comes in and sees him and she basically says I'm having some problems and she's like well I can't go I love you but I can't go through this with you and I'm going to need you to do me a favor I'm going to need you to bear your testimony to our congregation so that our girls know that their father still believes yeah and that's where they leave that episode off and where the show continues to show its interest in being a faith crisis narrative. Yeah. Uh, and I'm kind of curious to see where they're going to go with it. I, I've got some issues with some of the choices. Again, the, the things that they're choosing to obscure, the timelines they're choosing to, to change, some of the things that they're just full-on intentionally shifting. What is the function of those changes, and how is that going to resolve I think most the of them episode? are just for... I mean, that's what you do when you adapt something. You, you, ta- you take liberties. Now, there are some exceptions. What is the function of some of these liberties? I... I, I I think that the the meeting with the 70, I mean, I think that's really adding a pretty significant something that's not in the text, and that gives an impression that is not borne out by actual events, and so I do have a problem with that. But a lot of these minor things about changing the order of, of time frames don't really bother me. I think they're very minor points. Uh, like I said, I do think it's... I think it is relevant simply to the fact that it is relevant that these guys had fundamentalized before they went this direction. This direction did not come about in the mainstream church, which I think it's intentional that they're trying to imply that this is more mainstream than it is. Wow, you're talking about what, the perversion what of their beliefs. So what? What, speci- what specifically? Like their beliefs in the plural marriage stuff, all of that. It, it's less common in the mainstream church than it is in the fundamentalist church. Oh yeah, of course it is. Yeah, yeah but he's intentionally. It, it. My opinion is they're changing the timeline to make it appear as though they went through some of these things while still in the mainstream church to make it seem more mainstream than it is. Well, you do have some of that. You do, I mean, it, once once the church... if I mean, there's people that come from the mainstream LDS church and go fundamentalist, which yep. is what the Lafferty's did. Once that the church mainstream church becomes aware of it, you know, discipline is all but instantaneous. And I get that... The, it's very important to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to draw a distinction between them and the fundamentalist offshoots and that a story about mainstream members they get involved in that tends to blur that and they don't like that and a lot of members of the church don't like that they don't like that blurring but in this particular case this really happened that these people that were mainstream LDS got radicalized and splintered off yeah which has happened a bunch in the history yeah but they're making in the series they're making it appear as though it's more mainstream than it is I'm not, my, sure my, I'm not sure if I well I'm not I'm not sure how much I agree with with you on it but I understand I mean the 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 series does take time to talk about the different types of mormons and kind of the different degrees and wait to see different type of mormons it is overwhelmingly on the they're kind of nasty, they're kind of weird end of the spectrum, even some of the mainstream ones. Oh, yeah. But that bishop that helps Brenda, is, is he's a good guy. Yeah. And there's a number of other people that are legitimately good people that yeah. are depicted as mainstream LDS in this series. Yeah. Like I said, I'm curious to see where some of this goes. Again, my biggest gripe is that is about turning this into a faith crisis storyline as opposed to and creating drama around that as opposed to it's already dramatic enough, so in my opinion. So there is some sketchy stuff around the mom of the Lafferty's. The, like they're talking about the possibility of arresting her and prosecuting her as a accomplice, uh-huh. which 
I think they were just trying to scare her to get her to talk. Well, I haven't seen any evidence that like that threat was made, but it seems also very plausible that that threat was made yeah. because, again, so the murders were occurred on Pioneer Day, and the brothers had returned to Provo and were at her house the 22nd and 23rd of July before going out and committing the murders on the 24th and discussed what they were going to do in her home with her nearby. It's also of some interest to point out that the implication I got while watching this, especially the early episodes, well, I mean, it's a Friday when the murders happen because they have church two days later. But that's not actually the time frame. Uh, July the 24th, 1984 was Tuesday. Yeah. So, again, more liberties. Yeah. And the only other thing to... It's not... I don't know that it's particularly relevant to point out is in this series, Detective Pyrie and Detective Taba find the barrel of the shotgun in the Lafferty home. The Lafferty's did cut down a shotgun to take with them as they committed these murders. Uh, however, they took the barrel with them to use as a club to club Brenda, which they ended up not using in that way, but they did take the barrel with them. So again, there's no real function in changing that other than just, again, alluding to what the brothers are about to do. So your complaint is why did they bother to roll out the barrel? Wow. Should have saved that for the outtake. <laughs> All right. We'll be back after we watch episode seven. We're back. Episode seven. First reactions to episode seven, Nate. First reactions to episode seven. That's a mixed bag. Indeed. As I think this whole thing has been, and which we'll get into in more in more detail. Yeah, it's... Yeah, we're going to get into this in detail, I'm sure, as we go through the episode, so why don't you lead us? Okay, so the investigation continues. Uh, very early on, we have uh, a visit, fun, a fun visit at the police station from Elder Palpatine of the Quorum of the Seventy, last seen in the previous episode, meeting in conjunction with several others and uh, Brenda and Alan. He has arrived to put pressure on Detective Pyrie to just keep this whole thing as quiet as possible for public relations purposes. He proceeds to be uh, a 19th century stock villain and to thank Detective Taba. Detective Taba for his Paiute ancestor's help in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Yeah. Which, as I saw him that moving in that direction, I'm like, don't, don't you dare. Don't you dare thank him. Oh, dang it. Yeah. He also basically does a, a kind of a gangster thing. It's like, you got a nice eternal family there, uh, It'd be a shame for Pyrie, you, it'd be a shame for you to lose it. Which Detective Pyrie's already said that the brethren are going to take his wife and kids away from him like we were living in, yeah. Yeah, Pioneer era Utah. We have a flashback to Pioneer Utah to talk about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which has been alluded to before. So the Mountain Meadows Massacre is... I can't remember how how much have we talked about this before. It's been a while since we recorded. We've talked about it a little bit, but not tons and tons. But not in any real detail. So... Yeah. Mountain Meadows Massacre. So the church leaves, heads out to Utah, 1847, 1846, 1847. Ten years after they have settled there, there's rumors about insurrection, and they don't really go into this part of it, but there's, in the same year, and I, I forget the order, this probably happened earlier, there's the federal army was going to Salt Lake City, and around the same yeah, time... The, the massacre occurs before that. Okay. Yeah, but it's not too far, because this was in September. This yeah. was in September of 1857. There's a pioneer train going through southern Utah. It is composed of Missourians and Arkansans. Of course, Missouri, there was the persecutions in Missouri, and earlier that same year, LDS Apostle Parley P. Pratt had been murdered in Arkansas. 
So these people are from areas where the church has had trouble. It's like the, the amount of things that had to line up to make this event happen is crazy because you have people from this particular area at this particular tense time with these particular leaders in southern Utah, and a decision is made to massacre them with the aid of uh, Paiutes, who uh, the church was relatively friendly with. Brigham Young said it's easier to feed the Indians than to fight them. So they uh, generally were on pretty good terms with the local Indians. But the plan appeared to have been to blame the Indians for this massacre of the Pioneer Company. There is much dispute about if Brigham Young knew about and or ordered this. I tend to think he did not for a number of reasons. But certainly local church leaders uh, were heavily involved in this. And many years later, one of them, John D. Lee, was killed on the same spot of the massacre after being uh, found guilty of it. A lot of people feel he was scapegoat, which kind of was. He was involved, but uh, he was kind of the the fall guy for what a bunch of people were involved in. The conventional narrative is that Brigham Young did have knowledge of it, that he was, if he didn't order it, he didn't condemn it. But the involvement of the Paiutes was essentially, the conventional narrative is that the, they were basically splitting the loot with mm. the LDS people in the area. And so the motivation for the Paiutes to, to be involved in this was that they would get half the horses and other things. They killed like 130-something people in Quite this wagon people, train. And, they left uh, a small number of young children under like six. Well, and they left all of the bodies there. Like, yeah. yeah. There was talk of years later you could go there and find bones and things. And this Was, was Detective Tabas involved, like... The character of Detective Taba only involved in this show for the, the purpose of this? That's a large part of it, but also to get that, uh, the Lamanite perspective for, you know, that, that, that's an interesting contrast there to have an Indian there with, with the faithful Mormon detective. And also to be a it secular voice. It just feels voice. disingenuous. I mean, the secular voice, yes, I, I like that. Having Detective Taba there to offer the Native American version of it. Seems disingenuous, but that's. Uh, I didn't. I didn't have a problem. I with liked that. the that, that was character. that was a, that was a means of saying, "Hey, there's different versions of this story." Okay. Uh, I mean, I can see, and that. I'm fine with it. He did get a little heavy-handed at times with Pyrie, kind of blaming him. And this is another thing that kind of goes into the. I think I think of the narrative of the time where the book came out. You know, the post nine eleven, and you had a lot of criticisms amongst the new atheist of the more nominal non-fundamentalist religious people it's like you're just enabling them or emboldening them by supporting this stuff and so he really goes full on that against poor Pyrie doesn't really need that stuff but he goes off on that for a while yeah there's this this idea that the religion in general the church in particular has this inherent violent streak in it and when I was going to Boise State University 15 plus years ago there was there's an LDS Institute of Religion associated with it and uh, one day there was this guy who was a protest he was an evangelical Christian he was actually British he was there to spend a few days preaching I guess and then to go down to the funeral of Gerald Tanner he told us who'd recently passed away so I could probably date this based on that but anyway he was handing out stuff about the Mountain Meadows Massacre and I was trying to converse with him and said, no, do you think this is representative of the... Did I tell this story? I don't know. So I said, uh, do you think this is representative of, of the church? Like, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, what are the other massacres? 
It's like this is like the worst thing to like happen in the history of the church to be directly attributed to church people, and it is all based on a very specific set of circumstances that had to align at the right time for anything like this to happen. Yeah, it's a bit of a fluke, and I th- think there that there is some evidence that the locals were also told that these people in this wagon company were involved in the murder of Joseph Smith, that they were involved in the persecutions of the saints, mm. you know, other things to rile the locals off. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But, you know, you had to have, the, you had to have the, the, the amount of, the sense of persecution at that particular time with the federal pressure, you had to have this wagon train of people from this particular part of the country going by this particular town at this particular time with this particular zealot leadership. I mean, a lot of these things, you know, just slight changes in, in you know, in in the the time frame of things, the composition of the wagon train could have meant that nothing would have happened. Yeah, Jeb uh, for some reason takes his eight year old daughter's journals and is reading through them on this trip to try on this and trip. track down Dan and Ron. Yeah, so they they find Diana. So they contact they figure out that Diana's gone to Florida because that's where she uh, was going to nursing school when she met and mar- at Ron, who she later married. And that Brenda probably would have encouraged her to go back and do that. And so there's it's also, they say in this series that she was from New Jersey, but she was actually from Florida. Okay. So she went back there because it was closer to her family. I think they wanted to, this idea that she didn't have a family structure there, that she didn't have support mechanisms so she might flee. Yeah. Is what they were trying to do with that. But anyway, they end up contacting, they figure out that that's where she is. They contact authorities in Florida and they have this uh, woman, uh, Latina police detective, detective. Again, more diversity, more contrast to yeah. the the whiteness in uh, Well, and they did Utah. send people to do a welfare check on Diana. Mm-hmm. They did put her and the children into protective custody because Once they, they didn't found know where them. Ron and Don yeah. were. Yeah. There was not that, in reality, there was not that big of an effort to find her. Mm. They found her sooner than that. Pretty well. Okay. And then once the children were in custody, Diana leaves to rescue her sisters and head back to Utah. That's not... Uh, Historically accurate. All right, it's a dramatic effect. We meet uh, Ricky and Chip, the two good time guys that... So this goes back to the actual timeline. So Ron and Dan had left. So after Diana divorced Ron, they went on this trek, and Dan had been making visits to various fundamentalist areas and had taken multiple wives already. Mm -hmm. And then Ron and Dan go on this extended road trip where they go through the middle U.S. They go to, like, Missouri and other places like that. There's some speculation that they could have had an intention to go to Florida. They never do. In fact, at one point, they actually separate and then reunite at a a designated meeting place. I don't remember where they reunited. But as they were doing that, they met up with Chip and Ricky. And they join band with them and start smoking a bunch of marijuana. At first, it's just really cheap marijuana. Like um, one of either Chip or Ricky had worked at a marijuana farm. And they went back and picked up the tailings, like the buds had already been cut off, so it was really weak weed. Mm -hmm. They start smoking that, and then they get higher-grade weed. And then they return to Utah, like I said, either on July 22nd or 23rd, go back to the Lafferty family home. That's where they're there with the mother, which is portrayed in this episode, but not in a historically accurate manner. Saw off the shotguns and then carry out the plan on the 24th. They do go to Brenda's home. Ron goes to the door. She doesn't answer. They're leaving when Dan and Dan is driving, and Dan gets the impression that he should turn around and go back to the home. And and Brenda then doesn't answer. 
the murders are then carried out. However, it's not quite how it's portrayed in this episode. We do more or less, I mean, we don't see the moment of, we see uh, up to the moment of the murder. Basically. So there was like the, they did hit, beat her up. Ron was hitting her. They let her up at one point though. When we're talking to her, she tries to flee for, to the back door. And that's when they tie the cord around her neck. It wasn't to fit, make sure that she was dead. They toward, tied the cord around her neck to make sure she didn't get up and try and run again mm. while Dan went in and killed the child first. Oh. And then Dan came out and killed her, Brenda. And the child is Erica. I think yes. we may have forgotten to mention that earlier. So it's Brenda and Erica. But Ricky and Chip were in the car. They actually... there's a, So Ron and Dan confessed to the crimes. And the telling of the crimes between Chip, Ricky... Dan and Ron, there are slight differences. Ricky and Chip said that there was a lot of screaming, that they were sitting in the driveway and could hear yelling from inside the house. They got scared. So they actually started the car and backed it into the street, but decided to wait for him. Dan and Ron claimed that it was peaceful inside the home, that it was relatively quiet, but it was quite a bloody scene. When they get back in the car, they do have quite a bit of blood on them. Ricky and Chip complained about the odor of the blood. They then go to the Lowe's home. This is the actual history. They go to the Lowe's home no one's home, and then they miss the turn off to the state president's home, and then they just drive away. Ricky and Chip do end up stealing the car from Dan and Ron and fleeing and are caught, and they've discarded the clothing, the knife, those types of things along the roadway, but I don't believe they ever made it back to either of their homes in Wyoming. Mm. That's kind of manufactured for no particular reason that I could see in this series. Yeah, But it was it was interesting to finally more or less see the murder. Yeah, and I actually think that worked, kind of holding that off to the end and getting the context and the true terror of it. And they give Brenda a really kind of noble defense at the end as she she tries to protect her daughter, and it's she, and she was trying she to protect her daughter. Damns them, you know, but uses you know, she damns them. It's like it's like I will be whole again, and you will not be. Yeah, you will. Yeah, you will be cast into outer darkness. I mean, what else can she do in a, in a situation like that? And just. Uh, kind of lay a big truth bomb, I guess, yeah. on them and see how Well, and the day that the murders occurred, Alan was on the 24th. Alan was up at a... He did have a tiling job, which yeah. is portrayed in this episode, mm-hmm. and he was working at a job up in Ogden, had called Brenda, which is portrayed in this episode, mm-hmm. and had spoken to her and returned home about 8 o'clock, and that's when he discovered the bodies. And in some of the conversations that they later have with Alan, he talks about having kind of arrived at this kind of place of peace. It's like, oh, well, I don't believe in the church anymore, but I believe in my marriage. And this is what I am committed to, and I'll do what I have to do for it and screw my family. And unfortunately, that that doesn't work out uh, because of the murder. There's a scene where they're trying to track down the brothers, Ron and Dan, who are having an increasing... That that relationship is getting... uh, After the murder, I mean, they both want to be number one, and they they go off on this number one thing that's a little bit silly logic. Actually, supports from how how he figures this out based on this. I do like how they have that conversation out when they're looking for the the murder weapons. Rick and Ricky and Chip have told them where we dumped them, and they're having that conversation. And Pyrie's like, "Well, I don't know. Didn't they both say they're atheists? It's like, how can we we trust them?" So they have a little kind of digression on that, and Taba says, "Well, they're they're not like your, uh, unlike your intermittently compassionate people or ancestors, or your intermittently compassionate ancestors have an allergy to the facts." Yeah, but the atheists don't. Yeah, because we want to we want to drop that point here because we're making points. Yep, says uh, Dustin Lance Black. 
they go to Reno. They they find they they tell this girl Sandy, who may have been a mistress slash plural wife of one or both of the Lafferties. It appears to have been Dan that was principally involved with her. That's not fully clear. Um, she did get them like meal vouchers. She's a she's a real person. And they did I like kind of stay with her. her. Yeah, she yeah. is a real person. She took them in. They were staying at her house. She was getting the meal vouchers. They were gambling a little bit to pay for other meals. The previously earlier in the episode, the thing where they sent one of the brothers to Nevada to bet on a horse race, that was true. But that w- occurred much earlier, and it was to. They believed it was he was going to win the bet to get money to further the Dream Mine and the City of Refuge at the base of Have the Dream Mine. Have we talked much about the Dream Mine? No, and I don't know that we need to. Well, the Dream Mine is this... I think there's some stuff in the, the Old Testament about treasures getting hit up and like, like moving in the mountains so that people can't find the treasures. And then this also corresponds with folk beliefs related to the treasure digging that Joe Smith was involved in in upstate New York. It gets far more specific. There is someone who had a dream in which the mm-hmm. angel Moroni came to him. But it's born out of this yeah. background. Yeah. But the, I forget who the individual is that has the dream. They describe him as having been an LDS bishop like 100 years earlier. Yes, but I forget his name. Moroni supposedly flies him to Utah into a mountain deep underground where he has shown the remainder of uh, Mormon's records in the mountain. Mm-hmm. And that there's other riches buried there, as you've alluded to. And then there's this belief that the mine and the riches are going to be discovered just before the latter days and will be used to help build a city of refuge for the saints to hide and to defend themselves in the latter days. Which they describe as being under the mountain? Which no, but it was a, the city of refuge was supposed to be at the base of the mountain. At the base of the mountain. And the, mount, the, the dream mine was supposed to be located in Salem, Utah, which they accurately describe in the series, even though that they haven't placed East Rockwell or choose to create a fictional town mm-hmm. for the rest of it, but then they re- accurately detail that Salem is the location of the dream mine and that the city of refuge is just outside of the city of Salem. And this is a thing that it's it's like a like a treasure hunt thing. People have periodically tried to find and or operate this mine over the years. But it comes back to the school of the prophets and Prophet Onias, because Prophet Onias was a big stockholder in the dream mine, and the school of the prophets had collected money for shares in the dream mine to expand the Prophet Onias's holdings. Dan and Ron tried to take over the dream the operation of the dream mine at one point. Again, this is all tied back to the school of the prophets and before they go on this road journey. So while some of this is relevant to the story, it's not accurately portrayed in the timeline of this story. We have the confrontation between Diana. So Diana goes back to the uh, family the home, the Lafferty home, home, finds that Matilda. Matilda has been hiding there, takes Matilda, says we need to get out of the state, and they stop for gas, and it just so happens that the Rory Culkin Lafferty and his wife are there, and they have a confrontation. And they make a point of showing all these people, including a Boy Scout leader and some Boy Scouts, just basically do nothing when she's crying for help. It's like, you got to get it away from this guy. He's bad. And from Samuel Lafferty. From Samuel. And so they have a confrontation. Samuel and his wife drive away. But Matilda and Diana make their way out of state. They then contact Diana's family back in Florida. Uh, Florida. Uh, and that word eventually gets to uh, Pyrie and uh, Taba. Yeah. And then they have that, I guess the final confrontation is the brothers are trying to kill each other in the bathroom. Which also isn't accurate. Below one of the casinos. 
It was so it was at Circus Circus, but in reality, so it was they were arrested on August seventh in in Reno in line for the buffet at Circus oh. Circus. Well, they make a, a reference to that because uh, Pyrie talks about watching the buffets when he because they brought the they've got the local Reno PD, they've got the FBI's brought in because it's gone across state lines. It's a little bit anticlimactic that ending. I don't even understand the function and the point either. Uh-huh. Like, well, what is the to, function of creating this? They had to eventually catch them, and I guess they wanted to show... Because a theme here has been the deterioration of that relationship, the rivalry of those brothers. Which didn't occur. They didn't have a rivalry. No. Interesting. Again, I'm I'm fuzzy on those details. Yeah. But yeah, they're, they're, they really like this idea of the one. Borrowed from Highlander, apparently. <laughs> uh, but they, they really that's one of a number of themes that they, they really want to play up uh, the way they end it and I actually thought they set this up fairly well is they're getting ready to leave the hotel and Taba's talking to Pyrie and talking about uh, sings this little Indian song that he knows from childhood that's supposed to invoke supernatural powers protections uh, or protections something. for for their for the Paiute people and uh, Pyrie says, well, it's like, do you, do, you, do you believe that? It's like, well, I think it's okay to sing it now and then, even if I don't think it has any power, and that everybody needs a home, and basically says, go home, Jeb. I know your whole worldview's been in crisis, but just go home. And so he goes home, sees his daughter, sees his wife, and they had a really bad, bad fight before he went. It basically all but threatened divorce, threatened to leave him. Well, supposedly his wife... Miss Pyrie, played by uh, non-union Abby Cornish, Adele, Adelaide Clements, uh-huh. Rebecca Pyrie, has told Jeb, you know, because he's leaving to go on this trip, and she's afraid he's, you know, he, she thinks he's going to be gone for fast and testimony meeting, and he can't bear his testimony, and that means that he doesn't want to, that he's doing it on purpose, and that, so she basically tells him, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to get a divorce, and I'm, I'm going to go, go marry somebody family. else who's faithful. Yeah. She actually says, I married a faithful man to raise my family with. And I will do that whether it's you or someone else. Mm-hmm. The things have blown over somewhat, but yeah, they've largely blown over by the yeah. time. I mean, that these are things sa- said in the heat of anger. Yeah, um, but he returns home to his family, and they yeah. have family prayer, and then he takes his his mom out to see a lake. And the kind of the theme, the the note that it that it leaves on is, you know, I'm here for my family, and I'll just kind of play pretend about my belief because I love my family. Well, and because he can recognize enough miracles in mm-hmm. life. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the existence of the world. I thought that ending from kind of things that I'd heard, I expected it to be more heavy-handed than that. I actually kind of I actually liked, liked the ending. The ambiguity of it. Yeah, I liked that closing conversation with Pyrie and Taba. I thought that was really effective. I really liked the Detective Taba character. Yeah. I just think he's a really effective character. Mm-hmm. Andrew Garfield, his his character and his portrayal is excellent. They're um, a highlight of the show, is those two together. In that, well, that they do a great job of carrying out what they're given. I just disagree with some of what they were given. Mm-hmm. So, so since we've basically talked through it, should we talk about the series closing as a thoughts whole? or the yeah. series the whole? What are your thoughts on the series as a whole? Would you recommend this? That is that is the question, isn't it? Uh, I've gone kind of back and forth on it. It's very close. It's very borderline. I would probably not recommend it. Yeah. And I thought I would it, going into this. I would tell someone if you are interested in seeing it, watch it. Yeah. If, if you're, you're not interested in seeing it, don't bother. Yeah. 
However, I would encourage anyone who watches the series and has not read the book to go back and read the book. Yeah, I would definitely recommend the the book is is most superior. of this series does a disservice to Brenda Lafferty and and Erica Lafferty, who are the victims of this story. It's episode seven does do them some justice. Yeah. It's a little bit. It's not quite enough, and it's a little late. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it is be- a better portrayal. It does make much of the episode about Brenda and Erica. Mm-hmm. Not all of it, which is okay. They had to wrap up, wrap it up. But they're the true victims in this, and I don't understand the functional reasons of why they needed to create additional drama, additional victims, you know, and, and portray some of the things the way they did because the the actual facts were dramatic enough. I think the principle, well, one major reason why is because it's seven episodes. And there is an extent to which this feels kind of padded and stretched. Like, I, they could have done this in four episodes. I, I would have been fine with five or six, mm-hmm. but I would have preferred that they stuck to the actual narrative. Like, mm-hmm. why did we need to invent some of these narratives? What was the function in inventing or manipulating some of the narratives? I, I didn't. So a lot of the tiny little things, like switching the order of some things around, simplifying some things, I have no problem with that. The things that I have more of a problem with is, like, uh, Elder Palpatine. Yep, and and some Who's of these other things simply as general authority. Yeah, uh, some and of his the, portrayed by Frank Moore, and as we've referred to as Elder Palpatine, and he really looks like uh, and a, he, a real. He talks Star Wars with villain. one of these voice, and he freaking dusts his his dusts his feet his feet on them when yeah as he's leaving the office. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It, I mean, it, I think we both kind of laughed when he did that. But he was just so over the top. Yeah. There is a lack of balance on some things here. Again, I, it does go out of its way. It shows some good Latter-day Saint people, but they are definitely the minority in this depiction. Well, again, Most but of like, them are like that nutty. whole depiction, what was the function of it? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of an axe to grind. I mean, he's, he didn't like church leaders, and so here's a, an a-hole church leader for my thing. Which was portrayed effectively, uh-huh. but I don't see the need for it when everything was dramatic enough. Yeah. This has been my well, whole gripe yeah. the whole time. I feel like the story, as it was, was dramatic enough, and we didn't need this invented he's, stuff. He's making, he's using this as a vehicle to tell this story and also to make some points, and I think some of the points he was just overly heavy-handed on. Yep. And, he, and this is a problem I had with big love as well it's just sometimes it just went a little a little too far you know it's just a little too i guess part of what i'm trying to say is i talked about clear back in episode one that utah county and especially these small towns in utah county are a character into themselves and these are towns are a character in the story of what actually occurred and i would have rather seen a portrayal of a more accurate portrayal of utah county and how that functioned in the actual narrative of the story than the manufactured stuff. Mm. So, uh, if you want to create a condemnation of the church or of Utah County Mormons, there's ample amount there. And I didn't think the manufactured stuff was A, effective, or B, necessary. Mm. Again, so I'm jumping ahead slightly. I would rate this, I would probably give this 5 out of 10 on the 10-star scale. Mm. Probably just 1.5 on the 4-star scale. Mm. 
again, I would say if you're interested in watching it, go for it. But I would encourage anyone who watches the series to eventually read the book. I'd have a real hard time even rating it on those scales. I mean, there's some episodes that I thought worked really well, and there's some episodes. Episode that, that seven didn't would at all. definitely be ranked higher uh, in my mind. I think it was episode three also was more effective. I think episode four, I remember quite liking. There was one that had a lot of interaction between Pyrie and Tabitha, yeah, and that's when this that series really yeah, excels. That was fun. Yeah. And I mean, genuinely, that's when this series excels, is when you have the interactions between Andrew Garfield and Gil Birmingham as Detective Taba. When you have interactions between those two, this really excels. Some of the other stuff, not as much. And it's a little sad that the, one of the highlights is not from the book. One of the most highlight, you know, enjoyable things from this is added. Well, and to again, it as we needed vehicle. the narrators did, to take yeah. us through it. And so I felt like as our narrators through it, they were effective, but just didn't think that the manufactured drama was effective it's a real it's a real mixed it's a real mixed bag do you regret watching this no but i don't think i'm ever gonna watch it again i don't think i'll ever i mean it's just there's a lot of empty calories in this and it's just a real compelling story and it's just it it feels kind of watered down and and i do feel that it's stretched out I, i think the seven minute the seven episode thing i think did it a disservice this would have been better as like a two-part TV movie with two hours each. Like that's the way it should have been. I wouldn't have had a problem with a five-episode series, maybe even six. But you're right; it is long. And episode seven is a full ninety minutes. Yeah, like it was long. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they left a lot to wrap up. I wonder if this attempt of Ron to kill Dan is an allusion to what eventually happened in prison. So. What happens after the conclusion of the series is they both are in jail awaiting trial, and Ron actually eventually tries attempts suicide, not Dan. Mm. He hangs himself with his shirt. He's discovered in his cell. I believe they actually were celled together, and Dan's the one who discovers him. And he was unconscious, not breathing, for, with no pulse for at least 15 minutes before he was actually revived. Oh. He, so they were not tried together because they needed time to make sure that Ron didn't have any lasting effects from the suicide attempt. Dan is convicted by a jury. However, the jury is split on whether he should be sentenced to death. So instead, he gets a life in prison sentence. There is speculation that the jury that then tried Ron felt as though they needed to get retribution for the injustice done to Dan Mm -hmm. because Dan's the one that actually committed the murders, not Ron. Mm -hmm. In fact, they actually talk about, in Ron and Dan's telling, they say when they got to the house at one point, Ron went to involve himself in the murders and that some physical force pushed him away, and that was the message that Dan needed to commit the acts. But yet, Ron is convicted of the murders, as he should have been, and was sentenced to death. He chose firing squad, I believe, as his method of execution. He ended up dying of natural causes in prison before his execution, and Dan is still in prison in Utah to this day. I believe that Dan has been roommates and good prison buddies with Mark Hoffman. With Mark Hoffman. At the the time of the writing of the book, Mm -hmm. uh, in the interviews that were conducted for the book he was cellmates with Mark Hoffman intriguing I want to listen to their podcast (laughs) I feel awful yeah it's just like yeah but yeah I want to I want to listen to one of their conversations well and I don't know if you recall this but Dan's defense was that he couldn't have been convicted of murder because God ordered the killings and also I should clarify on some of this part of why they're so worried about Diane in this portrayal in episode 7 is that she's listed in the removal order when in reality, she was never in the removal order. Mm. There was only four names ever on the removal order. It was Brenda, Erica, 
Bishop Lowe and the stake president. So I, that was there to, to 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 keep her part of the story and to keep a sense of tension. They There's wanted enough to have of a sense tent- of tension when they're looking for these guys and they have danger. no idea where they are. You say, we know they're in Florida, but we have no idea where these guys are. Yeah, we think they might be well, in danger. You don't need to have they them. Like the the- idea. So, so they've already killed one, one Lafferty bride. And the idea that another one and, and kids are in danger, that's, that's what they were going for. I don't have a huge... See, that, that's where the place where we disagree. I, I don't... I mean, it that, doesn't have a, a net effect on the end other than when they have Deborah leaving her kids and trying to come and, and rescue Matilda. Yeah, what, yeah that was, you know, there's a little... The a manufactured little drama of... How they driving across how the, the country? Yeah. Well, no, I mean the. I was going to say the manufactured drama of them thinking she's on the list. You're right; that doesn't have any net effect. Like they did send people to look for her because they were worried about her and thought they might be going for her, and put her in protective custody until they they captured the brothers. Mm-hmm. That part doesn't have a huge effect, and it does when it ends. I mean, there's a lot of threads left hanging, like what happened to Rory Culkin in his life. They were last seen. Well, they claim off. that uh, Brenda's dad came and picked him up from the station. Well, no, that's, that's, a, that's, I'm talking about Rory Culkin. Oh, at, Samuel. Uh, at, uh, Samuel, yeah. But yeah. They, they talk about how Alan goes up to Twin Falls to, and that's interesting because he, his, him and his in-laws had always had kind of a strange relationship, but you know, that's who he had left. And the fact that they would take him in even after the death, I mean, that speaks very well to them. Well, it seems as though that their relationship had stabilized. Brenda's yeah. and Alan's had stabilized. They seem to have been getting along at the time of the murders. Because yeah. love lifts us up where we belong. Wow. Where the eagles cry and the mountains sky, and I don't know the lyrics. But it's in Harry and the Hendersons. Yeah. IMDb shows the series getting an aggregate score of 7.5 stars. Individual episodes have different ratings. The highest rated episode on the series is episode 7. I'd probably give it a 6 or 7 on the 10 star and a 2, 2.5 on the two star and I feel part of me feels bad doing that and I, I think one of the things that people have like like there, there's a lot of people that really like this and um, the fact that it showed a faith crisis on screen was important to a lot of people a lot of people really responded to that yeah. and I think there's that representation aspect of it well and I think uh, that that is fair like that mm-hmm. could have happened someone investigating this yeah. case could have had a real faith crisis in this two-week investigation trying to find these brothers Mm. and and get them arrested for the crimes. That could have happened. I just didn't see the need for some of the digressions and changes. They heavy-handed it. I mean, they just just made Elder Elder Palpatine... Yeah, Elder Palpatine, the standoff at the cabin, things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a mixed bag. We would both say it's up to you. Yep. Recommendation wise. I mean, like I said, if you have an interest in watching it, watch it. Uh, Yeah. Mm. But consume the book for the better version. Yeah. In and of itself, as entertainment, it's fine. Yeah. As an examination of of this subject matter, it's flawed. Or even as an examination of the faith. If you wanted to view the book as an examination of fundamental Mormonism, I think it, it does a pretty accurate portrayal. I don't think this one does. It's doing too much straddling the line of the fundamentalism and mainstream, whereas I think the book is pretty clear on what, you know, dwelling, delving on the fundamentalist. Yeah, and the book also tells the Elizabeth Smart story and some, some other stories. Well, how that connects again to the yeah. fundamentalism and extremism. and Yeah. I think if you wanted a vehicle to tell the story of... of 
mainstream Mormonist, mainstream Mormon extremism, as you alluded to in a previous episode, the Bundy story probably would have been a better story to latch onto. Mm. Anything else? No, I think we've said what we have to say. I'm Rob. I'm Nate. And this is Rob and Nate Record a Podcast. What? Go for it. Now Scott says pet me. Uh, you ready for this? Going to God's country, going to eat a lot of peaches. Going to God's country? God's country, because they have peaches at the beginning. No? I thought the song just said, going to the country, going to eat well, a yes, lot of peaches. but I am revising the lyrics. Okay. All right. He's digging for the dream mine, she is. It's going to sound great on the recording. Mm-hmm. You ready? Yeah. I'm Rob. Well, we already did this thing. Oh, duh. Um, so it was, it's, so there was something else I was going to say about Mountain Meadows, but I seem to have lost my train of thought on that one. The bodies left in the field, Paiutes, fodder for the chopping block. Oh, okay, so this myth, this idea of... Let me grab my charger real quick. Sorry. Keep going. So there's this mine. How, how do you even approach this thing? How do I pause I it? I made a movie back in 2007 about uh, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. It's called September Dawn. Mm-hmm. And it stars... Um, oh, I'm blanking on his name from Batman. Christian Bale. No. Rescue Dawn? September Dawn. Rescue oh. Dawn is a... Sorry, Werner I'm thinking Herzog. of a different one. Is a Werner Herzog movie. September Dawn has John Voight and Trent Ford, Terrence Stamp in it. Terrence Stamp is Brigham Young, and John Voight is a kind of composite uh, Southern Utah leader. Dean Kane is Joseph Smith. Um, oh, really? It it is bad. It is re- it's really bad. Uh, as I said in the actual podcast, you know this is. This uniquely awful event in in the history of the church, and someone like a Spielberg, I, who could show empathy for you know for for both sides for not for the people that so much the people that led the attack as you know it's like these people have been persecuted and they were afraid that this was happening blah blah blah, but this thing was in no interest in showing all the Mormons were awful. They were all stuck and, and all the Fancher people, and apparently the Fancher people had been kind of uh, uh, what's the word? Kind of poking the Mormons with a stick a bit uh, bef- before this happened. Obviously the reaction was way, way overboard, but they weren't like the serene peaceful saintly, perfect Smurf people that they were in this movie. Um, that movie's bad. That movie's yeah. really bad. Nobody's gotten directed by Christopher King. I wonder if there's a relation. Nobody has gotten Mountain Meadows right in film yet. Yeah. Stepfather of Roger and Dean Kane. And Crescinda Kane, who also is in this movie. And he was very struck with the fact that the massacre happened on September the 11th. Oh, really? And so he was like, like, it's not just Muslims. Okay. Okay. A love story set during a tense encounter between a wagon train of settlers 
and a renegade Mormon there, group. There is one Mormon that gets to redeem himself by leaving the other Mormons and saying they're awful. Yeah. He's the only he's the only good Mormon in it because he leaves. Interesting. Come on, Nate. It's been two weeks. You have to have another witty outtake for us. Nothing? No. Yeah. And my doctor passed out, so they don't even have some sort of noise to make. Did you like my dog cuddling on you as we watched? Oh, yeah. Except for when he growled at you because you yeah. tried to move him? Yeah. <laughs> don't let sleeping dogs lie. Yeah, literally. Mm-hmm.